Okay, so hello. Welcome back to Everyday Seeker. Welcome if you're a first-time listener. This is Rebecca Muir. I'm your host. And today I have with me a friend of mine who's in the Boston area, Josh Summers, and he's the co-author of the book, The Buddha's Playbook. So a little bit about Josh. Yes, he's an author. He's a yin yogi. <laughs> he's a meditation instructor. He actually does workshops all over the world. Um, he's always traveling every time I speak to him. He's just getting back from some place amazing. Uh, he's an acupuncturist, and he is also a musician. He also plays the saxophone. And he's a self-described dharma practitioner and actually josh i was wondering if you could kind of break that down for us a little bit and tell us what the difference is between that and maybe just a buddhist (laughs) yeah hi rebecca hey Um, josh (laughs) nice to be here um that that designator a dharma practitioner is a is a term that uh, a guy named stephen bachelor i think i heard use where he was differentiating that between uh, being a Buddhist. And the idea is that when you're a Buddhist, um, there may be certain things that you believe in or subscribe to that have been um, part of Buddhism for a while, some sort of belief structure about what happens after death or um, the the nature of the universe and such. And a Dharma practitioner um, would be more in lines with somebody who is sort of putting into practice in their life some of the teachings that the Buddha gave. Gotcha. Way I, I would so it's not so much about belief, it's about really taking in a, uh, a type of teaching and a practice and, and trying to apply that um, to your life as much as possible. Yeah. It's, it, it sounds like hair splitting a little bit. Um, not really. I, I, can for, get, I can get down with that. I like it. <laughs> it's kind of more of a secular uh approach to Buddhism. Very much, actually, because, and I'm familiar with that because I have a history um, with the Shambhala community, and so you can get Buddhist in that community, but they also do a lot of secular work where they teach, they offer the teachings without having all the, you know, religious stuff go with it, so that actually doesn't seem at all strange to me. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, you know, it, because it, I mean, and this will come up in our conversation, I think. But the, like, if you say you're a Buddhist, then it can. Um, tend people tend to think that it goes along with all sorts of other ideas that they associate with Buddhism. Maybe it's like, oh, you suddenly then believe in reincarnation, or you believe in. Oh God, uh, that's um, I'm like, do you? <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole other conversation. But, yeah, uh, we can go there. We can go there. <laughs> Yeah, well, no, that's awesome. So I wanted to start off, actually, um, when we talked about what we wanted to talk about before, I thought it was brilliant that you were like, I want to talk about what spirituality is. That's something that I've never really thought about defining before, and it's an Mm. awesome place to start. So um, when you asked, well, you didn't ask me that question, but (laughs) you said we were going to talk about it. And I, I was trying to think to myself what that would be to me. So I'll just open the floodgates here and say that when I was trying to think of what that would encompass, I was thinking it's really anything that helps you connect with the deeper meaning and value of life. And that's how I would define it. Um, anything that can help you connect to your purpose and to your happiness and to love and to, to find some peace within yourself and, and with life and with the mystery of existence. <laughs> um, and I would even say that 
It's funny, I keep bringing up atheists. It keeps coming up. Because I, I feel like when I was a kid, I used to be one. You know, I was like trying to think about what made sense to me. And I feel like even when I considered myself an atheist, that that was a spiritual uh, thing for me. Because mm-hmm. I was really using my mind um, and my logic and my reasoning to try to find, make sense of things. And so even though the concept of God that had been presented to me um, through my culture and through the Anglican Church didn't make sense to me as a child, you know, I was still, so I rejected that. <laughs> it was still a spiritual reasoning. Do you know what I mean? It was still a spiritual search. So anyway, yeah, and, I would just, and, yeah. And, and I would wonder about whether um, maybe certain conceptions of God um, were causing you to to feel kind of um, confused or sure. or, or yeah. unresolved or um, trying to find the right word like or just problematic you know to, yeah, to, to creates a, a lot word. of internal dissonance like how can there be this entity that, that then allows uh, sort of lots of forms of the of suffering that we see in the world or even outright evil um and so yeah your atheism might have been had had that in your definition of spirituality a quality of of spiritual search of like trying to come into a connection with something that's truer or something that gives you a little more peace absolutely Um, yeah i mean it's interesting because my father at the time was an atheist and my mother my mother wasn't and so i was exposed and they were both very open loving wonderful people very progressive people so i was exposed to these two concepts and so that got the juices flowing in my brain it's funny neither my father nor i are atheists any longer (laughs) i don't consider myself an atheist but that's uh, a whole other conversation but what is what how would you define spirituality what is that for you um, yeah, it's actually a kind of a loaded term, um, and, yeah. and one that, uh, I, because it's so loaded, it can mean so many different things. I actually, I don't gravitate towards it that much anymore personally. Um, I think, uh, for me, I would say, uh, the way I would use the term is that it's spirituality is in, um, a path or a series of technologies or practices that somebody can do to um, connect them more, as you are saying, you know, connect them more to the to their life and to their world, to their self, um, to decrease uh, a sense of fragmentation or um, mm. alienation, or and and help bring about a resolution of maybe internal discontent with with their life. Boom. You know, so it's, it it's, 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 that's, that's sort of an operating definition that I have. It's, a, it's, it's in part a way of self, uh, coming to better self-understanding um, and then how that understanding integrates with, with the rest of your life. Um, yeah, but I think, peace. yeah, <laughs> but I think, you know, I think there's some um, other levels or other, other approaches to spirituality that are worth just fleshing out so that the conversation that we have um is i don't know is um is focused and uh and and not getting confused by by some of that those other definitions because you know i think you you and i have both probably had experiences where uh, we have these peak moments peak experiences that can be either blissful or seemingly transcendent and i think um, many people have these experiences and that tends to be part of 
the, the, the working definition of what spiritual is. So, so spiritual, spiritual, a spiritual experience could be sometimes can be seen as like some peak experience that's beyond the mundane. Yeah. Oh my God. I love that you're bringing this up. Right. Yeah. I love that this is going there. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Continue. <laughs> so, so that that's this is part of a, a, a sort of a, a consensual idea about that's in the general public about what what spiritual is. Um, and I think connected to that, there's uh, a part of spirituality that often involves um, thinking about or trying to connect to some dimension of life that is beyond the material. Like there's some immaterial dimensions out there, or hidden realms of, of existence that that um, that one can connect to, that can maybe be um, tapped into as a way of getting information about how you're living, what you should be doing. Um, and it's sort of this mystical, quasi-mystical realm that I, actually I don't know much about. I just want to be transparent with your audience. Sure. <laughs> I don't really have any uh, much connection, <laughs> connection with that. Um, so I can't comment a lot on it, but if you like, I'm just thinking if you go into a spiritual bookstore and you are, you get, you, you can get this whole spectrum of stuff, whether it's from crystals to chakra work to yeah. um, in, inner core, inner self stuff to, you know, Tibetan Buddhism or it's whatever It's a rabbit it is. hole that you exactly. just keep going down. Yeah, right. of course. Um, and then, you know, I, the, I'm sort of borrowing a little bit of, of conce conceptualization from this American thinker named Ken Wilbur, who um, also talks about how spirituality is often associated with certain very high levels of development, of human development. So, for example, when somebody gets very, very developed in their, in their psychology around um, love or compassion, they have a very high, high degree of of love in their life, that, that tends to be equated with some sort of spiritual development or spiritual quality. Um, mm -hmm. Or even just someone who is virtuosic, um, uh, like a, a virtuosic musician yeah. or a virtuosic, virtuosic athlete, there's, there's something in the greatness of their expression that often um, takes on kind of a spiritual dimension. It's, it's sort of, above, again, above and beyond the mundane and it's somehow transcended to normal existence. Um, so those are just some of the, the, the ideas that I've seen around spirituality. Um, yep. And I think they're good to put on the table in this conversation just so that we, when we do talk, we're like, we're clear, like, okay, we're going to take this part and put it to the side maybe <laughs> and, and look at what, what, what it is for us. Sure. Um, I mean, it's funny too, because I was like, let me Google this. Just what comes up on Google. I did not do extensive research whatsoever, but there's a couple top hits that came up. And um, actually, I should reference the website here. Um, the top hit on Google was a website that's takingcharge.cshumn.edu. <laughs> it's kind of long. But uh, just to, if anybody wants to get really nerdy, just to reference it. But they talked about spiritual, spirituality is connected to a large uh, set of some questions. Or, sorry, not a large set of questions, but... Um, a set of large questions about life and identity. So they, and they, I thought that was actually really kind of cool to point out. So some of the questions they have listed here are, am I a good person? Mm -hmm. What is the meaning of my suffering? What is my connection to the world around me? 
do things happen for a reason? And finally, how can I live my life in the best way possible? And I was kind of like, wow, that really does lay it all on the table. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's, that's sort of what has certainly for me prompted my um, spiritual search. Mm-hmm or prompted my interest in spirituality or wanting to f- develop my own. Um, so it's, what is the meaning of my suffering is a big one. <laughs> actually. Yeah, actually. <laughs> That's a really yeah. big one. Cause we're so, a lot of people and my, one of my very best friends, Jamie Lynn Hart, who I interviewed in the first podcast episode, I feel like she's a little bit of an anomaly in the sense that she had the spontaneous spiritual awakening and it wasn't because she was like suffering and s- desperately seeking, you know, uh, relief. <laughs> she just had this spiritual awakening. But I feel like for the majority of people, um, and definitely myself included, and I will share my story at some point, um, things get so uncomfortable that you're just like, this isn't working. I've got to find some answers. Yeah. So, you know, in that. Um, a lot of most of my practice has been in, in early Buddhist Buddhist practice, but um, one of the things we might say in that tradition is that the Buddha was like a, a strategist, mm. a, happy, a happiness strategist or a peace strategist, and and so what you were describing, and, and this is a, I think you probably know this is a huge piece of Buddhist contemplation is just to open to and experience the various ways in which the human mind will suffer. And, and actually create suffering for itself. And it's really through coming to uh, coming to terms with that process and to, the, to that sort of existential issue that the mind creates suffering for itself that will prompt people, or I think both our cases, prompt us to look for something, a way out of the suffering, to mm-hmm. look for something that's not suffering. Um, but yeah, certainly don't. It doesn't have to be the doorway, but it is the doorway for many, many people. That somehow there's something inadequate, incomplete, unsatisfactory with life as it is, our life as it is right now, the way we're living, or, or what was what's going on, and we're looking for something, sometimes beyond this or something within this, but something that's 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 more fulfilling. Yeah. And it, and 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 another thought I just had while you're talking is that. Uh, the broader term spirituality might, might be one way of looking at it is that it's a it's a way of meaning making. It's a process of meaning making. We're making looking for meaning in yes. our life. Like what is it? What does it mean to be here now? Why are we here now? Um, these are ageless qu- questions that I think humans have probably been asking for hundreds of thousands of years. Absolutely. That was a big thing for me and still is. I need for everything to make sense, <laughs> you know, and right. it doesn't and it drives me crazy. So actually, I have been able to make sense out of a lot of things. But, you know, it's just there's a great it, it is a great mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it can be uncomfortable when we're really aware of that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what drew you i mean you are a dharma practitioner you do teach yin yoga do you do other forms of yoga or is it predominantly yin i've done other forms of yoga um i actually started with a style called iyengar yoga mm-hmm. which um, is a very, very uh, strong practice of, um, physical poses um, has a lot of alignment principles in it 
Um, and I've did a little Ashtanga and Vinyasa. I should say that the Yin Yoga is a is a quieter practice. It's meant to complement balance other active practices, mm. and it. Um, Part of the, the idea behind it is that it helps prepare people to sit in meditation more comfortably. So when you do come to your cushion, your the body's a little bit more open, mm. and you're able to sit still for longer without being um, sort of racked with un- uncomfortable sensation. <laughs> so that's that's how I got to Yin Yoga was through meditation. Actually, was, was starting to do retreats. How did you get into meditation? Looking. Um, how did I get into meditation? Um, well, through, through suffering, <laughs> <laughs> yep. through that, through that there doorway. It is again. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, so there was, there was, not to get too far back into ancient history, but, um, go for it. So you're a musician. I, I can't really call myself a musician now, but I, I do appreciate jazz a lot and other forms of music. And I, I, growing up, music was a huge part of my life and, um, when I was in high school, I had a, a, a music teacher who, um, part of the way he would teach us was to try to get us into um, a flow state, I think. And he would do that through sort of meditative means. He would have us calm ourselves, visualize ourselves playing before we played. Um, he would try to have us visualize the optimal outcome wow. of our playing he would talk to us he would read to us things from zen and the art of archery and talk about you know don't make the music allow the music through you these these kinds of things and wow um to young to the young minds uh in that in his groups we were all kind of uh, enamored with zen and talking about zen because it seemed deep and, and profound and um you know, I, remember, awesome. I remember going to like, high school parties and asking girls like do you know what the sound of a one hand clap is <laughs> thinking i was just like, showing like showing off my my profundity that's hilarious <laughs> um, but 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 with this teacher and and in that time I, I i do remember having a couple of experiences while playing um which i would now characterize as a flow state where um it was definitely a peak experience I hadn't had anything that that amazing or, or mind-blowing before happen but it's, it's, it's an experience where you're playing you're doing something and your sense of self completely vanishes like the sense of you there that the world there's a world out there that's that vanishes there's a kind of a unification with all of the entire world or everything that's happening right then and there um i felt like i was a, this vessel for something greater coming through me and it was brilliant light and sort of a blissful sensation in the body. Um, and it kind of blew my mind. I didn't know what it was. Wow. Um, and that coupled with the, the, the style of this music, music teacher's uh, teaching kind of got me interested in ways to reproduce that kind of experience. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> because I like, I'll have more of that. I will have more. I'll have another, please. Right. It's, yeah, and in your book you even talk about, you know, it's like our nature as human beings is always we're, we're wanting to grasp the things that feel good and to resist and push away the things that don't. But anyway, that's just yeah. tuck that in there, but carry on. Yes, you'll have another. Yeah, so, so I just I started sort of dabbling with um, some styles of meditation um, and the 
the ones I came across first were, were basically would they be categorized as forms of positive visualization, where you sort of calm yourself down and then visualize what you wanted happening and sort of surrounding it with white light or frames of white light and and then just imagine it so maybe there was an affirmation in that 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 would sort of articulate this thing happening um and it doing that um i would say did did bring about some positive experiences i, I felt like i had i moved towards positive things more i was um able to not necessarily reproduce that those peak experiences but but there was more, um, there was more contentment in my life at the time. Um, and then I don't know what happened. It just sort of seemed like the, the, the effectiveness of those, that style or that approach wore out mm. where, um, you know, no matter how much I kind of visualize things with white light, there was still <laughs> painful, unpleasant <laughs> things that would occur. Um, and then, and then I, don't I, I just hate felt, that. Yeah. And I kind of felt <laughs> there was some sense of failure and like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm, like, I'm not doing this well enough. Oh, um, and, yeah. and then I would say that that next big phase was then when in college, um, through just some very personal, uh, painful interpersonal stuff like breakups and mm -hmm. just feeling like didn't know what to do with my life and the tax of existential pain uh, <laughs> sticking in. Um, I, I remember finding, I think a girlfriend of mine at the time was practicing yoga out of a book, and I looked at the poses of the, uh, in, the in the book, and they, they reminded me of um, stretches I used to do when I was a goalie in hockey. I played ice you were hockey. a goalie in hockey? Ages ago. Ages oh, ago. wow. Okay. Yeah. So, um, which is partly why I'm into hockey now, as we were talking about earlier. Right. Um, That's awesome. Before the show. Um, but I started, I don't know, I just started doing some of the stretches again and I and actually was reminded of how good it felt to stretch out like that. And, and then I found another book on yoga. I started looking in bookstores and looking at books on yoga and I found one, um, by Iyengar, BKS Iyengar. And there was something in the beginning of this book, he quotes a, a, a something called the song of the soul. And it was, um, a, a sort of a poem about. A, a transcendent state of existence or a transcendent realm of existence that was above and beyond the ups and downs of normal life, like mm. beyond victory and, and defeat, beyond pain and pleasure, beyond um, happiness and sorrow, there is the bliss of the soul. And to my mind then, that was like, that just that just grabbed my attention. I thought, is this possible? Is it possible to attain some state of consciousness through yogic practices to bring about this realization and then to abide in that? And that, you know, to myself then, that was a really compelling thing. It hooked me. Sure. I mean, to be and, able to hold on to it, right? But I mean, to hold on to it without grasping, because the second you grasp. Yeah, exactly. But I didn't, I didn't even know about the problem of grasping then. It was just more like, okay, there's this, there's something up and up and beyond, beyond above, above and beyond this, like feeling lonely, like not being able to get a date or whatever. Right. <laughs> not, no, not, sure, not, not sure what to do with my career. Like, what, what am I doing to myself? Like something beyond these, these, these mundane difficulties. Um, and I got really into doing yoga around then and 
if once you get into yoga, there's sort of this um, in the in the in the yoga scene. There's this idea that if you're really really doing it, you go to India. <laughs> that that's what makes you legit. You go to, okay, you go to I see. So, so my senior year, sense. I started I started studying um, Hindu uh, religion, Vedic religion, and uh, I had a professor who was pushing me to go to India too. She's like, you know, you really should go to India and, and, and uh, check it out while you can. And I, after graduating from college, I ended up spending about three and a half years in Asia. I spent a couple of years in Taiwan teaching English. I didn't know this. Wow, and, and also cool. a year in India, um, teaching seventh grade at a, at a small primary school. Um, but I also got to study yoga there with the Iyengars and I, I really, it gave me, it gave me a lot of time to be by myself, um, and do a lot of self-practice. I got into meditation then more, um, but I still didn't really have much clue what to do with my life. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. That, that one little question there. Yeah. Um, yeah. At some point, I got introduced to acupuncture in Taiwan, and um, and that seemed like a compelling career option that I could be a good day gig. I could come back and go to acupuncture school and and become an acupuncturist. And um, I was very interested in that and pursued that. And when I came back uh, to Boston uh, during that first year of acupuncture school, a friend of mine had, was signed up to go on a nine-day silent meditation retreat at the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Mass. And he said, you know, you're always talking about meditation, you're uh, reading about it, um, seems like you do it a little bit, but why don't you come on this retreat? And I um, kind of naively signed up and said, sure, why not? Sounds good, Sounds, I'm up for it. <laughs> um, and that, I would say that, that um, all that story was just a build up to this first retreat experience because I feel like this on this retreat there was, um, it was really a, a pivotal, pivotal point in my life where I felt like everything I'd been looking for finally got revealed on the street, that retreat, that this was the path that um, seemed really compelling and, and in many ways was the thing that I'd been looking for all over the world and finally found in, in more or less my own, in my own backyard, yeah. <laughs> Don't you love that? <laughs> wow. As sort of an archetypical, archetypical That's like um, the, yeah. full circle around Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Even The Alchemist, that hugely famous book by Paolo Coelho it's like exactly his treasure his buried treasure is buried underneath the tree that he <laughs> yeah anyway yeah yeah exactly in his own yard or where not his yard his yard but the tree where he first had the dream about the buried treasure and he went all mm -hmm. the way to Egypt to find it so that's actually very like that's really amazing that's like such an archetypal story right so, so yeah you go away come back you find it um, and that's how I got into into formal, I would call formal meditation, like a systematic um, lineage-like approach to to looking at your experience. And that, that retreat, um, do you mind my asking? I'm just curious, um, like what's, it's insight meditation. I'm not too familiar with that. I mean, was it, were you sitting in a room with a bunch of other people meditating all day? Were you on a silent like solo retreat, what kind of deal was that? Yeah, 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 sure. Um, there's there's lots of st different styles of retreats, and this right. And there's lots of different styles of meditation, we should say too. Yeah, um, there really so is a lot of different ways you can do it. 
Right. Lots oh, of ways yeah. of skinning, skinning the cat. Absolutely. Um, in, insight meditation is a translation for a style of meditation called Vipassana, uh, which is attributed to the early Buddhist schools of practice, um, found in Thailand and Burma and part, other parts of Southeast Asia. And it's really um, just a way of uh, seeing your body and mind process clearly. That's Vipassana could be translated as to see clearly. Okay. And the idea is that when you see things clearly, you have insights about the nature of what you're seeing, or greater insights. So that's why I think it gets translated as insight meditation now. Um, mm. And in this in this retreat setting, you're depending on the number of people that sign up for the retreat, you could anywhere between 75 and 100 people there. Um, and it's in silence for the most part. There's a few points in the week or during the retreat where you might have a conversation with a teacher or be in a group that discusses kind of the kinds of experiences that people are having. Um, but you're mostly in silence. And the, the schedule of the retreat is very simple. You um, more or less alternate back and forth between periods of seated meditation, which could be about roughly 45 minutes, and then periods of walking meditation for, again, 45 minutes, where you walk slowly back and forth. Mm -hmm. And the idea is just to bring uh, a continuity of attention to your moment-to-moment -moment experience. So you're just steadying the mind um, with the contents of your experience that are coming up and um, starting to see it in a, in, a, in a deeper way. Sure. And how many hours a day? I'm just, this sounds very similar to a Shambhala training, which mm -hmm. I've done they have many levels. I it's been a long time. It's been like more than ten years since I've done one of these. But I did the level one twice, and it was a full weekend, so it wasn't nine days. But um, yeah, I mean that was like my first real experience of like sitting for long periods of time, and um, the concept being not that you're trying to sit and be all peaceful and zen and get rid of your thoughts, and that was kind of like. A little bit of a um, a rude awakening for me. Uh, I feel like I'd read in books that it was, you know, what it was supposed to be like. So the the Shambhala books that I had read, essentially, they're saying it's not about trying to find peace. It's not. But until you sit there on the cushion, until you're doing the walk meditation and the, and the cushion meditation, you don't necessarily you you don't have the experience of that. And so then you're like, okay, this is where I meet my mind. <laughs> and it's it's watching what arises and it's sitting there with whatever arises um, but I'm just curious of how how many hours a day that you were doing because nine days is a long time for your first time of like doing serious sitting like that I found two days to be two days was a lot <laughs> so yeah long. you know actually it's it's um, well to answer your first question I, I think I mean it just you get up at around five five thirty I think Wow, that's so hardcore. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, yeah, around that time. And then, um, but then, you know, there's a couple meals a day and there's a Dharma talk in the evening and um, meaning a, a talk where the teacher gives a gives a, sort of an explanation about some aspect of the teaching. Um, there's there's work periods where you might have an hour of work to do, chopping vegetables or mopping, mm -hmm. mopping the floor. So that it, there's, there's, there's sort of, "Quote unquote breaks." You're not meant to right. stop the practice, but there's 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 other things going on other than just sitting and walking too. Um, but I'd say total, you maybe 
sitting for maybe six to seven hours a day total right in this particular retreat center um but to your comment that two days felt like a lot and people often ask me about retreats and i'm always encouraging some of my students to go on retreats i think it'd be it's a good it's a worthwhile thing to do everybody seems to say um well what about a weekend i'll just i can do a weekend maybe i'll just go for like a friday to sunday um and the thing with that is that it's in the shorter um, retreats, you don't actually have as much time to settle into it. Yeah, you definitely don't. <laughs> and for most people, even people that have been doing it for a long time, the first few days on a retreat are some of the hardest. And those are the days that you're just dealing with um, the mind's conditioned way to resist what's going on. Mm-hmm. So you have... In, in Buddhist jargon, we talk about these mind states as hindrances, the difficult mind states like desires for other things, aversions to what's going on, dislikes, liking, restlessness, boredom, sleepiness, doubt, <laughs> all like all these these difficult mind states where you, you just it's it's hard to sit with them, um, and usually by uh, it's, I hate to I wouldn't want to say like an exact day because it's different for everybody, but at some point maybe beyond day two or three or four, um, if the practice develops enough uh, sort of momentum, the mind becomes a little more concentrated and you start to experience yourself uh, temporarily free of those mind states. Or or maybe uh, you just surrender to them at that point. Yeah, you know, and, and, that's, um, and that's exactly, the, mm-hmm. the, the resistance to them drops. So it's sort of right. amounts, to the same, amounts to the same thing. There's just a, takes... a sense of ease with them it takes a while to get there though exactly yeah I mean the first time I did that because I did the level one twice and the first time I did it it was much more difficult than the second time because the second time I did it I was living at a Buddhist retreat center and I was practicing daily but I wasn't sitting for many hours a day do you know what I mean? So the second time I did it, it's like if you can sit for an hour, then four hours isn't really that long, you know, um, over time. But in the beginning, it's... Well, in, I, I guess I would qualify too. Are you talking about sitting for four hours straight or four hours well, I, over, over a period of a day? Yeah, like over the period of a day or even longer than that. But I mean, yeah, four hours, four hours straight, but you'd probably have walking meditation interspersed. And maybe, I can't remember again, it might have been like three-hour chunks and then or maybe, I'm not sure it's been a long time <laughs> mm. but yes I mean it's definitely something where I recognize what you're saying is if you're doing a longer retreat like that it's like the mind almost will burn itself out <laughs> or like the resistance will you know the resistance the resistance will because yeah. you you know at first it's fighting and it's looking for you know and eventually it's like well this is futile this isn't getting me anywhere so I'm just gonna chill <laughs> But it's like if you try to tell yourself to just chill from the get-go, that doesn't it doesn't really work like that. You sort of have to go through the experience. So exactly, you have to yeah. flail. You have to fail until you see the futility. Oh, you know, it's like that. Is it Star Trek or that line that all resistance is futile? Yes. Oh my God, that's a great. That's brilliant. I didn't know about that line, but I it's for, true. I forget. It's okay. All resistance is futile. Utterly um, futile. So, so yeah. Um, Josh, that's, that's really fascinating that you did that. You just went into that nine day retreat, like right off the bat. Um, I, I think at this point it'd be great to take a little break and come back and kind of talk about, 
um, where that left you after that and then get into the spiritual bypassing sure. part of the conversation. Is there anything else you wanted to add to that, though, before we lose the flow? Um, no, no. no. Yeah? I think it's a good time. All right, well, we'll take break. a little break and we'll be right back with some more Everyday Seeker with Josh Summers. And we're going to be speaking about spiritual bypassing. Stay tuned. <laughs> Yeah, that- 
you just heard the song Let It Go by The Naked Stills, some very, very good friends of mine based out of the Boston area. That's off their record Cocheco, and you can find them at www.thenakedstills.com. Okay, so welcome back. We have Josh Summers here. Um, I know that I said we were going to leap back into the conversation or leap into the conversation about spiritual bypassing, but I feel like since we've been talking about your practice and your experience in the retreat, and I have your amazing book here, I do want to actually, Josh co-wrote a book with Michael Brooks called The Buddha's Playbook, Strategies for Enlightened Living. And I want to bring up um, what he calls ATM. It's a specific style of meditation, and it's really awesome. ATM stands for All-Terrain Meditation. It's kind of like wherever you happen to be, whatever is going on, it's not, we're not just doing this, um, looking for things to be a certain way. I actually feel like I need to look at my notes because there's a, um, a particular quote here from your book. Okay, so with all-terrain meditation, you don't need to feel peaceful to start. You simply practice with however you are, right then and there. Any environment is perfect as it is, noisy or quiet. The bottom line, if you're waiting to feel like meditating or if you're waiting for the perfect environment or time, you're going to be waiting a long, long time. Yeah. Can I, let me, so let me just say like this, that, that phrase ATM or all-terrain meditation is just sort of our somewhat cute way of trying to really explain what insight practice or mindfulness practice is having people do. Um, because most of the time, even though a mindfulness practice might say you're meant to be aware of whatever's there, you know, whatever's coming up is the thing you pay attention to, even though that's sort of um, explicit in the instruction. The strange thing is uh, students kind of hear whatever they want to hear. <laughs> they, they will uh, come in with all their preconceived ideas about what it means to meditate. And for most people, that means that when you meditate, your mind should be clear. You shouldn't have many thoughts. They shouldn't, and if you are having thoughts, they shouldn't be um, troubling thoughts. Your your body should be feel comfortable. It should be quiet. All sorts of ideas like this, and that's not really part of the insight or the mindfulness practice. Right. Um, and we were just trying to make that really explicitly clear. And we we're comparing calling by calling ATM where we're trying to compare it to styles of meditation that focus on concentrating the mind or focusing the mind in a way so that you maybe do shut other things out but we were suggesting that this is if you have the idea of an all-terrain vehicle yeah. ATM vehicle it can it can it can just cover go ride on anything and that's that's the idea that we were trying to convey with the, with the mind is that it's it, it takes everything in your life and makes it part of the practice yeah, that's so awesome. And it's so in line with everything that I have found um, in my own studies of meditation. I mean, really in the Shambhala, in the Shambhala community. So um, shamatha meditation was where I started, which is really just focusing on the breath. But it's about allowing whatever to arise. Um, and and I remember even when I was living at, at I was living at, it's now called the Shambhala Mountain Center in Colorado, and I was living there for a while in 2001, and it's funny because people would be meditating, and sometimes things would be noisy in the environment, and they'd always say, it's okay, that's good for your practice, it's good for mm -hmm. your practice, um, it's, <laughs> it's just, 
that's, that's life. The whole point of even practicing and sitting on a cushion is to be able to take it into the real world. What you right. get there, right? So I thought I just thought that was brilliant. I love all terrain meditation. I love mm. that title. <laughs> and it is you said somewhat cute. I'm like, no, it's totally cute. It's a hundred percent cute. I it's just it. um, if you, uh, you know, in the yoga scene and or in my yoga classes and even some of the meditation classes I lead, you just so frequently get get students who or people who who, who kind of have this idea of what meditation is based on um, sort of the covers of mag- special magazines that they see in the checkout line at Whole Foods that where there's somebody serenely sitting on a rock. With, <laughs> yeah. With water babbling by them, and they're wearing a. <laughs> with a match- water I'm, babbling by them. <laughs> you know, and that's and and but this this speaks to kind of think where we're going to be, what we want to talk about when we get into spiritual bypassing, where people are are you trying to use a technique to sort to get away from what what their life is actually bringing up, or what what's what's actually going on in their life. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I and I clearly, you know, at least I think we both maybe start this way. Is like we something was our our life was not fulfilling or wasn't um, felt felt uh, like something was wrong. Like yeah. the, we were wrong or I was wrong. And um, when I heard that poem or saw that poem in that book, it was like there's this promise that there's something else that I can I can get to. I can get somewhere else beyond here where I'm going to feel resolved or I'm going to feel. <laughs> kind of a state, state of perpetual bliss of sorts. Um, so people, I think it's it's sort of the that's that's the lure of the advertisement of spirituality that yes that, that you're going to practice yes. and um, somehow change the content of your mind or change the content of your experience uh, for the better. And there are certainly aspects of of certain styles of spirituality that that might do that, like they're kind of maybe a a dressed up version of self-help right right and then then there's these practices that actually go in deep into this investigation of what is the what is the body and mind process what is this notion of self and and seeing that clearly not necessarily changing it but just seeing the nature of it um that can that can bring about a, a quality of peace um that's mm. not that's not ultimately dependent on circumstances or conditions being one way or another Actually, it's funny as you say that uh, the title of a Pema Chedron book comes to mind, The Wisdom of No Escape. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was big for me when I was really into the Buddhist um, or the Dharma Dharma practitioner kind of deal. Um, but she talked a lot about making friends with whatever arises, mm-hmm. right? Or um, I suppose... It, it's difficult, but over time, it really does shift if you do continue to practice because it's, as, as we said before, you kind of realize the futility of resisting it. You sit yeah. with it for long enough because you cannot force yourself to be other than you are. So, you know, for me, even if I'm sitting and I'm up, like a lot of what would initially arise when I would, would sit would be that I would be frustrated at myself because of the state that I was in and I'm like it's like first of all you're upset so then you're upset at yourself for being upset (laughs) it can really snowball and you can have these very intense really extreme um, experiences especially when you first begin to sit until you uh, over time begin to allow that 
So now if I sit and I'm not feeling well, it's, it's really, I have cultivated a great deal of compassion for myself. And that actually does extend to the rest of the world by default. But with being able to accept myself in whatever state that I am with whatever is arising, even if, even if I, there's things I can't accept, like if I don't accept my anxiety or I don't accept whatever negative experience I'm having, I can accept my non-acceptance of it. Mm. I know that sounds a little rabbit holy, but that's, no, that's, that's really legitimately where I've spent some time over the last year, um, particularly in a few difficult periods. And I've really been able to just accept the not even my resistance, <laughs> which actually it's, it's sort of funny because when, if you can get there, things really shift very quickly. You can go from feeling not okay to feeling okay in a split second. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Yeah, because um, what you're just—I mean, what I hear what you're saying is that you're just—you're really just—you're pointing out this this very slight shift, kind of in your internal relationship to what's occurring. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's a it's a I sometimes call it the one degree shift. It's the one degree from being hooked. I think I think Pima Chandra uses that language like you're hooked by the experience to just really allowing it and, and fully being with it without without that added hook mm-hmm. of resistance or struggle. Yeah. Um, and that's that's ultimately I think the the, uh, the name of the game. It's like in, in so meditation one way of describing it is that you're just looking at the thousand and trillion ways that your mind generates forms of resistance. Yeah. Right. And that's and so rather than trying to get into a peaceful state or create a, create this like um, delicate state of peace with a quiet mind or whatever that is, um, by working with whatever does come up. Yeah. By allowing your mind to think, allowing your mind to or the body to feel unpleasant sensation, by working with all of those um, experiences and allowing it, uh, you you actually build your or strengthen your own capacity for tolerance mm-hmm. and and non-resistance mm-hmm. so you are the and those might be the same thing actually but um so it's not that you um you get the, i think a lot of people think in spirituality you're going to get into a state where like you're kind of like it's almost like putting yourself in a bubble right you, you get into this <laughs> a spiritual state and you're in this bubble which um prevents things like the mud and unpleasant things from getting in right but really really i think in the, the, the deeper transformation at least this is the way i feel about it is that you're de- you're developing these these qualities of mind like tolerance or, or non-resistance or compassion that come from just being with everything that's happening yes and it's i can't remember there's no particular quote or particular i can't remember who said this but i know that i have heard it and i think that it makes a lot of sense to me is that even the enlightened masters the buddha you know um and and all of the enlightened teachers that are around now it's not that they don't feel they never get angry or they don't get sad or they don't get depressed they're just fine with it when they (laughs) or not they don't resist it it's just you know it's they allow everything and so even that becomes okay yeah they they allow it and they or they experience it and they they understand it for what it is yeah they don't and that's just again the difference between being lost and or hooked by 
mm. the experience that you're having mm. and just seeing it, seeing it. Oh, this mm. is and recognizing this is this is anger or this is irritation. Right. And, and being able to to allow that just to take express itself naturally and, and not necessarily have have yourself or your mind contract around it. Yeah, you can yeah. feel it fully without getting swept away by it. Exactly. Um, yeah. So so I kind of want to do a, a segue into to the, to the spiritual bypassing thing. Can you define what that is for us? Do you have a definition? I have one, but I want to yeah. see, I wanna see I mean, what you're going to say about it. Well, this is the term spiritual bypassing. I only learned about it uh, maybe a couple of years ago. And I think it, it's a term that um, a, a Buddhist practitioner and I think psychologist named John Wellwood coined. Okay. Um, and I, my sense of it is that it essentially refers to the way that any kind of spiritual path or practice can be used as a way to go around or avoid <laughs> your your psychological, your unresolved psychological stuff. Yeah. Or your, your or your um, your messy shit. Your messy right? shit. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, and I, I think. I think it's actually, in, in terms of uh, people's experience with spirituality, I almost think everybody probably does it a little bit, Absolutely. if not a lot. A lot. It's it's a, it's, a, it's it's part of the um, it's part of the tra- trajectory of the path that you will at some certain some points sooner or later find yourself um, using the technique or using the, the the teaching to to push away. The things that are painful in your in your personal life, um, mm-hmm. and I, I often I even joke with my uh, my students sometimes in my classes. I'll say something like, you know, if I talk about spiritual bypassing, I'll say, "Hi, my name is Josh, and I'm a I'm a spiritual bypasser." <laughs> like kind of the way calling yourself taking 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 role in AA or something because it's yeah. it's 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 so common. But I feel like- um, and so even in uh, part of the reason I. Part of the reason I went on with my story a little bit as much as I did was just to sort of get a sense. You could see through it that I was trying to get away from certain kinds of pain. No, I'm so glad you shared that. I feel like that's a really important part of the conversation is that people can understand. You know, that's what people are going to relate to. Um, yeah. Not just the concepts that we're presenting, but to be painted a story of how those are playing out. Right. And that's what that's what makes it relatable. So that's important. And I really appreciate your sharing your personal experience. Yeah. Um, and I, I just so I see it a lot. I, I mean, I I feel like I'm I'm I, with my friends. I have more male friends that are that I know who seem to be more blatant uh, spiritual bypassers there's sort of a and this this gets played out in, in spiritual archetypes where um, the male male mass or masculine spirituality tends to just observe and okay. this, is, this, is, this is this is best um, I guess best personified in the in the Zen master um, Forget his name now. The guy who Bodhi Bodhidharma, the guy who brought uh, Zen to China, he sat. He he attained enlightenment after sitting and facing a blank wall for eight years. So he just he he observed everything. Oh my everything. god, that sounds hellacious. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's really strong. The female version, the female form of um, of spirituality is more 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 expressed in a in a 
manifestation of embracing everything with compassion and more heart quality. These are sort of the way that the, the, the genders experience, not always, but the Archetypally. genders tend, that, yeah, tend, tend, to, tend, to, tend to experience mm-hmm. spiritual realization differently. Um, and for me, I and my, and my the guy friends that I have, you know, it's it's definitely like that. We just we wanted we had we all have had the ideal of being a monk, like if we could just put on the robes, do this thing full time, live live out in like some secluded place in Asia, that we would, <laughs> that we would our, our problems would solve. We did, we could we could attain whatever. A, a state of enlightenment. But and, that's avoiding uh, life completely. Exactly. It's, it's a, <laughs> like it's, completely it's, avoiding life. Like it's, it's like, um, let me just go live in a monastery. Yeah, and that, right. no, I'm sorry. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But the point is to bring your practice into into scooping the litter box and <laughs> whatever other things you have to do. Yeah, I mean, but this is but this is the like this is the energy that can come up. Yeah. Or the, the I would even say the idealization, the idealization that I think many people have. Whatever, like fill in the blank. To be spiritual means you really, really what? Oh, I love that question. Right, like if you're really doing, if you're really, really doing it, what would that look like? God, there's so many, the new age to me, that would mean you would raise your vibration. That would be like a big thing that you'd hear now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, what, what, what would you fill in that blank with? I mean, I, I don't know how I'd fill it in now, but I, I, um, I mean, I would say now, if, I guess I would, I would answer, I'd say, uh, it just means you're, you're, you're committed to an ongoing exploration of your, of your life. Um, and you're and, mm. look, and looking at your your mind and body um, in a deep way, um, and answering some of those questions you brought up around spirituality, like what is what is my relationship to the world? What like connected. what is my purpose? Am I connected? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you know an earlier version of me might have said, if you're really doing it, you're going to meditate, you know, six hours a day, four hours a day. You're going <laughs> to yeah. you know only only eat certain foods, only wear certain clothes. Not drive cars, not not drink coffee. Um, Only eat organic. Yeah, right. Yeah. All, all these kind of... Um, Only buy things that are in season. Yeah, I mean, it can get really intense. And again, there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But it does tend to... Um, like, what, I had this one really amazing moment, actually, when I was, again, living at this Buddhist retreat center in Colorado. And I was 19. And there, there was the female bathroom that was like for everybody. We were all living in tents on this. Um, they were great tents. They had like wooden floors and like full on beds, but we were living in these tents. So we had to go to the public bathroom there. And I had my hairspray, which I've been grown, having grown up in Canada and worked in health food stores. I was aware that like you didn't just spray that shit like around anywhere that people might not appreciate that. But you know, there was no one really in there. And I was like, let me just put some makeup on. Like, I wear less makeup now than I used to. Then that was when I had first gotten to the center. And, you know, I was like 19. I didn't have the self-confidence to be walking around without makeup. So I was putting my makeup on and I was doing my hair. And there was this older, quirky woman who lived on the land full time. I was like living there for a summer for like a four month period. And she just looked at me and she was like, that's bullshit. (laughs) And she gave me like the heart and she was like a, 
she was not nice about it. She was quite nasty about it, you know. And it was really funny because it was so, like, reverse. It was so judgmental. And it's, it's like, and so reverse snobbery, you know. So it was mm-hmm. like, it's like really even though you're living at a Buddhist center and the idea is to like allow everything and live and let live and not cling and not be, you know, but she, I felt like there was just as much drama there as in fact, maybe more on that land because people are, um, people are so involved with trying to figure their path out and trying to get it together that things intent, everything intensifies. So she had this very strong reaction to what I was doing, being like, that's not spiritual. You know, why are you wearing makeup? That's bullshit. (laughs) But it was sort of funny because I'm like, well, I'm just doing what I'm doing. But anyway, I feel like now I've tangented, but... No, 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 no. You're you're bringing up, you know, some interesting stuff around, like, you know, what what does it mean to be... What is, what, is, what is classified as spiritual? Like, so, like, if you're putting makeup and hairspray in your hair, like, this is not spiritual. If you're watching a sports game or, you know, having a beer with your friends, that's not spiritual. Right, but her uh, way... There, 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 there's this, there's this, this dichotomy or, or split division between sort of what's sacred in life and then what's not. Right, but I almost felt like she was being like, like, it was a bypassing of sorts being like, well, you can't look at aesthetics at all or else that's not spiritual and it's like my it was like her wanted to ignore the reality of people wanting you know people wanting to look nice or like me wanting to put pink lipstick on or something you know what I mean like I almost felt like that was a little bit and even at the time I recognized it I think I can really see it now but I recognized it at the time as I'm like that's just that's bypassing the reality of us being like physical and like and having an aesthetic like or ha- having valuing aesthetic right you right. Know, she was like rejected she was rejecting that entire part of like our culture in the yeah and of- i think that's really common too like it's like if you're spiritual you're bland you need to have bland taste like you need to I mean, and i went through this I, I went through a phase where i was just like i was gonna wear sort of my black phase <laughs> my my bland and black phase where I just you know you don't you sleep on the f- close to the floor and you you only eat brown rice for most meals <laughs> I love it I love it you know and it's like somehow there's you know I didn't get any happier doing that wow <laughs> but, I, but I felt like I was in the like in the right program for a little while and I, you know this, this these kinds of things burn them their self, themselves out That's but it's part it, of your it, journey. It, it all points, yeah, and it all points to the way that, in a way, um, the practice itself can be kind of hijacked to go around the pain of what you're feeling in your life. Right, and she had such an avert, like it was very an emotionally charged reaction to what I was doing. So obviously, the concept of having to wear makeup or having to look a certain way for a woman like was like an emotionally charged thing for this woman you know so it was just uh, yeah so her way of avoiding that and those issues was to just like reject all that shit and be like I'm not gonna wear any makeup and I'm gonna move (laughs) sorry I'm like way over generalizing but yeah yeah. anyway um but there's an uh, that's like that's very interesting um just about the idea of feeling like spirituality has to be a certain way and then going all into that um and that is also part of 
waking up and part of figuring things out, you know, your brown rice phase or your black phase or whatever you called it, right? Um, but it's, I feel like one of the biggest things that comes up now, especially in the new age community, and this isn't wrong, it's very valuable, but is the concept of gratitude. And I really want to bring up this article that I found on Facebook a few months ago. It was the best article. It was so great. And, um, you know, my friend Jamie and I, who was on the first podcast, we did wind up playing this game that the article talks about. And it, it totally, like, just made us laugh all day and it was like we felt so great but anyway this article uh let me just pull it up it's by a guy named mike hrotoski like h-r-o-s-t-o-s-k-i and he's a men's coach but he's got this blog and this article is called fuck you spiritual people for using gratitude as a oh hang on (laughs) for using gratitude as a bypass to your anger (laughs) oh yeah i actually a friend of mine in switzerland sent this to me it's um, so funny. It is the funniest article of all time. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. Him and his girlfriend are just sitting around, like, the breakfast table, like, talking about all the things they're mad at, and they're like, fuck Monsanto. Fuck Best Buy for being closed and having shitty store hours. And, like, just going on. And then his girlfriend at one point said, like, F something. And then she was like, but I am really grateful that, we you know, whatever, like, trying to do that thing where she shifts her perspective to try to be you know, have feel gratitude. And he was like, that's the wrong game. <laughs> How about fuck you spiritual people for using gratitude as a bypass to your anger. And so that does, I feel like that really does happen. And I know that myself, for myself, I have actually, I've gone there. I've less so now, mm-hmm. but especially in the, you know, in the well, beginning the- of the my new age path, for sure, with all those books that come up that talk about gratitude. You know, I had a gratitude practice. Gratitude is, I would say, it's like it's an expression of, in this particular scenario, um, gratitude is an expression of sort of overemphasis on the positive. Like, Mm -hmm. like life is meant to be just. If if you're really, really, like achieving your optimal fulfillment or optimally fulfilled, you will be positive. And if you're not positive, then you're just you're just not you're not you're you're indulging negativity too much or something like that. So there's a I, you had actually sent me a link, uh, which you might want to uh, include about uh, what was it Teal? Is that her name? Teal, Teal Swan. Teal and Swan. Yeah, she had a nice little. Um, oh, yeah, I'm gonna definitely have that on the website. Um, so there's a video <laughs> section on the website for every everyone that's listening, and I will be posting Teal Swan. Um, T-E-A-L-S-W-A-N.com. But she's got a video on spiritual bypassing and she nails it. And I'll actually, I'm sorry, I'm going to interject and just give her one sentence definition. Spiritual bypassing is the act of using spiritual beliefs to avoid your unmet needs, deep pain, and unresolved wounds. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, and she said one manifestation of it is to, it's it's this sort of aggressive emphasis of the positive. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you, 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 you set up an intolerance in your, in your experience towards, uh, towards anger, towards difficult emotions. And you, and you maybe just say, well, I'm going to be grateful for the, I'm going to focus on the positive. Yeah. So that's, that's what, I mean, these are sort of like, I actually made a list before we met 
today to, to sort of flesh out some I of the, love it. the the cliches that you hear a lot um, from people. And I think, and I'm not I'm not uh, denigrating the people or disparaging the people. I think people me- really do mean well when they say this, but they just maybe don't see how um, how using these expressions does distance themselves or detach themselves from their actual the truth of their experience which is that there is some painful stuff in life that we're trying to integrate um so so um you know someone says oh i'm just trying to focus on the positive (laughs) you know someone someone has cancer or someone someone um lost a loved one and 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 the constellations just focus on the positive and and you know there's nothing wrong with with focusing on the positive but it's how it to gets ignore used. The, to ignore what's there is like yeah, sweeping it, things to, under the rug. It's going to keep popping up right? anyway, you know, until you deal with it, until you're able to process it and integrate it. It will come up in one way or another. <laughs> yeah. And it's, but it's also, um, it's in the last couple of years, like I would say 10 years that, you know, there was this resurgence of the kind of, um, spiritual teaching around the like laws of attraction yes. or law of attraction and this these notions that you we create our own reality which um you know i'll just come out and say i i, I feel like these these are actually quite painful teachings <laughs> um because they, they essentially blame the victim that if 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 things aren't going well in your life it's because you you've manifested this through poor thinking or bad thinking. Sure, like sure. so, if you have if you have cancer, if if if, if your if your child was, um, you know, killed in, in some horrible accident, um, you created this. You manifest it because we create a reality. We attract what what we what we put out. Um, and I just think that's a just a kind of a, a wrong <laughs> wrong wrong understanding of causality in the world. Um, but it it does set up this um this, uh, sort of this painful situation where people will then d- to deny their what they're actually feeling and, and try to to sort of put a smiley face over it right or, it's or, like right, sorry go uber, ahead uber positivity like. yeah um what's her name debbie ford who has now passed away she's a, a spiritual teacher i think she used to say it was like covering uh putting uh, ice cream on top of poop <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what she used to say. So, yeah. It's still poop underneath, right? So Right, right, right. Yeah. And actually, um I wanted to mention as well because that video definitely like Google YouTube Teal Swan spiritual bypassing people. It's so it's so good, but um it's very succinct. But she does talk about um Oh gosh, it's in my notes here. Uh, people using cognitive reasoning to escape emotional feelings. I feel like that's like a big one too, and you don't have to be a spiritual person to do that. Um, or no, that's a, that's a big one. I mean, especially in, at least in Buddhism, when I folks I hang out with, um, yes. You know, so so th- let's give a, a real example where maybe um, something unpleasant is happening. Like maybe uh, like I think even Teal used this example. Person A has gone through a painful breakup. Person B is talking to them and then uses <clears throat> some sort of cognitive reasoning to to reframe the experience to distance mm. that person from the actual pain of the loss of the relationship. Um, so 
Buddhists might say something like, "Well, you need to let it go," <laughs> or, or this everything is in, everything is impermanent. You're just realizing the, the the impermanent nature of things, and we use a conceptual teaching like that to distance, detach, or um, or avoid the actual truth of the feeling that it sucks to be dumped or lose yes. something you care, care about or have and something not work not work out. You can't let it go sometimes. Like you keep, you have to continue in meditation. It's like, you know, they're talking, this is the perfect segue into this because she also, Teal says meditation is frequently used to avoid uncomfortable feelings and unresolved life situations. And I feel like when she, I, I can't remember exactly where she said this, but I was like, boom, yes. Cause I feel that way too. When you're sitting on the cushion, especially with certain practices where you're continually asked to return to the present moment and to return to, you, um, your awareness of the breath, your awareness of where you are in the universe, on your, I'm in this room, I'm on this cushion, I, I'm breathing, I'm focusing on my out-breath. And that is, um, like, if, you're, if I'm sitting on the cushion and I'm going over, my mind is spinning, I'm going on about some, like, situation that's really troubling me. Say, you know, I like a guy and I think he doesn't like me or I got dumped or something, right? So I'm going on and on about that. And then I'm like, oh, I'm thinking, let me just come back to the present moment. But it's like abandoning that. Does that make sense? It's it's like, no, the present moment was actually what I was dealing with in my mind at that point. Like that was my present moment experience. And yeah. so it's not to say that it's not, that there's no value in shamatha meditation or vipassana or like coming back into the present moment because in that sense you're able to watch your mind and you're sort of able to gain a greater awareness about what's happening inside you and that there is value in that but it can't be one of those things where you're where you're uh, rejecting that because that actually is your present moment my present moment is that i'm like sitting here ruminating about this experience and i need to you know, I need to allow that. I need to maybe learn to accept myself in this state rather than trying to escape it. And I, to I totally agree with you. And that I, um, you know, the present moment is another cliche that, that, um, that gets used and in the bypass where people are like, you know, um, when something difficult is going on, I just try to come back to the present moment. And <laughs> What they mean by that, I think, is that they mean to come back to sensory experience within the present moment. If we're going to be like, I just want to get precise on this for a little, because it's a, uh, kind, of a, yeah, kind of one of my 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 axes I like to grind. I love um, it. And you and you've already you've already said it. I'm just going to echo back and, and talk about some of the things you just said. Um, so rather than allowing, rather than acknowledging that thinking or ruminating, as you said, about what what the issue is, mm. and allowing that into the as part of the present, we, we disallow that. We say, no, 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 that's, if we're, if we're thinking, we're not somehow present. We're, we're not connected to what we're allowing in the present, which is just sensations. But if, as you were saying, if you just look at your mind from any, even, even now, the only place that thinking occurs is, is the present moment. Yes. Right, so the mm -hmm. thinking is, if if we if we expand the definition of what is, what the present moment is made of, then we uh, it, it it necessitates that we allow thinking in, that we and that we tolerate that, um, and I th I think as you're saying that by doing that you're going to get greater insight around how how those thoughts operate, 
what kinds of things support those those kinds of feelings and thoughts, and um, you're going to increase your tolerance towards them, which is ultimately going to serve you more uh, without going around them. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it's like I love I, Teal. She was so wound up when she said it. I can't remember what video she's like. You know, when I was ruminating about my divorce, that was the present moment. Like yeah. that is the present moment. That is the reality of it. So. I, I was like, yes, preach hallelujah, hallelujah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. you know, and this gets back to the issue of positivity in that sometimes you get the sense that, like, this present moment is all, the present moment is always going to be pleasant. <laughs> yeah, no. That's... Like, if, you, and if you're just, if you're not in the present, it's just because you're, or if you're, un, if you're experiencing things that are unpleasant, it means you're, you're just not present enough. Yeah. But, but you know, again, you can just do a quick thought experiment and realize you could, you could be experiencing a terrorist attack in the present moment. You could have bat battling cancer in the present moment. You could uh, just have cut your finger in the present yes. moment. You know, there's all sorts of bad, horrible things that could happen in the present. From a more Buddhist perspective, I would say what the being what being more fully present does. Is allows you to take greater responsibility for how you respond to what's going on mm, and you are able to practice because like practice your response so yes. the way that you do respond to what arises in your being in your mind is going to shift over time as you begin to watch this pattern unfold you begin to see your pattern more clearly yeah and so as that unfolds the way that you're going to respond to it is going to evolve naturally. So it's not even like, now that I can see what I'm doing that's wrong, now I'm going to fix it. It's not even about that. It's just over time that will naturally shift. into a, you'll, you'll sort of um, relax into more allowing as you see the futility of your struggling against yourself. <laughs> that yeah, makes any re sense. Really well said, I think. But you can even, I mean, yeah, totally well said. I, I, I just looked down at my notes and there was this, I made a, a jot about the monkey mind. Mm. Do, you remember, do you remember this, hearing yeah. this in meditation where people talk about, oh, my monkey mind was going like crazy. Yeah. In the context of what we're talking about, that phrase, monkey mind, it's, it's, a, it's a disparagement of thinking. That uh, the thinking is just the, some expression of my monkey mind, and somehow it's it's nonsensical. It's bad. It's it's not, it's not worthy of attention. It's not it's not worth getting into. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. But it's uh, there. It's there. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, that's. I feel like like I'm never going to not be thinking. You know, I'm I'm I've always I've never been able to stop thinking. So I just don't try anymore. <laughs> I more or less just accept monkey mind. Yeah, you that know, sounds... A, a successful meditation for me is one where my mind is doing what it does and my feelings are doing what they do and they're being what they are and I'm allowing all of it. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, great to hear. That's that's exactly it. I Sometimes I, I, I joke with a group that I'm working with, I'll say, at the end of a meditation, I'll say, how many people feel like they did, there was a good meditation? <laughs> you know, and, and, and out of like, say, 20, maybe a couple hands go up, and then I say, how many people feel like that wasn't such a great meditation? 
and more hands go up, majority go up. Mm. And I said, look, from my perspective, as your friend, coach, teacher, whatever you want to call me, um, the fact that you stayed in the room and that you intended to be present to what was occurring indicates to me that you practiced really well. It was, in fact, yes. practiced 100% perfectly. Like, that's the best you can do is to just sit and intend to be with what's occurring. That's so awesome. That was in one of your uh, blogs. I read that. I remember reading that and being like, that's awesome. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But there are, there's so many ways that, coming back to the bypass thing, that I think people just try to go around. And I, I still see myself doing it. Like what? Can you give us a, just, a personal example? <laughs> um, well, you, you quoted how Teal uses sitting as a, as a way of, or meditation as a way of avoiding something. So let's say like, you know, I've got some conflicts uh, with with work or with my relationship or just or a friend or something. And um, rather than actually look into it more closely, I might say, you know, what? I'm going to go sit. <laughs> so I'm doing I'm doing something spiritual. That's good, right? You know, right. I'm going to go I'm pay just... attention to my breath, yeah, my body, or my sensory or... experience in the present moment. <laughs> Or another one is just a, is, is a form of kind of spiritual conceit or arrogance that, that um, because I do practice like this, I'm somehow, quote unquote, more evolved or better. Oh, yeah. Or more advanced. And, and you, you normal people out there that don't do these practices, you know, you're just, um, you're worldly in a sense that you, you, you don't really appreciate the, um, the, the, the profound vantage point that I have. <laughs> totally. Oh, my God. Jamie, my, I keep bringing her up because she's so awesome but that's what we we have like this inside joke where we're like that's so 3d that's so 3d what does that mean what is 3D? dimension because you know like the whole new age thing talks about like fourth dimension fifth dimensional consciousness more spiritual realms of consciousness and being right so being just here in the mundane is third dimension we're like oh my god that's so 3d Oh, we're just kidding but like it's so funny and it's the same thing as that woman who gave me shit for wearing makeup at the buddhist retreat center yeah you're you know? totally 3d yeah i was way too like not i was so not as spiritual as she was because i wanted to wear mascara <laughs> so you know um but actually, it's funny because now I look at her with compassion and I understand, you know, I, I've been guilty of judging people in the past. Absolutely. Especially in the past. More so than now. You know, I'm sure I even still do it unconsciously now all the time. Um, well, that's a word. You know, maybe we should have another whole podcast on the word <laughs> ju judging. Oh, um, God. Totally. Because that's another one that I think is is, is uh, used as... Um, a way to avoid uh, difficult thoughts and difficult emotions. Like if you if you feel them, like if you feel particularly anger or jealousy or um, contempt, you feel these things. It's like you see yourself judging. You're supposed to be you're supposed to be non-judging. You're supposed to become become a person who doesn't judge if you're spiritual. <laughs> and you I actually think I think that's it. a yeah. You can't help you it. Can't and help I, it. I, that's I how the mind it, works. It's a survival mechanism. The, the brain is wired to make try to make sense and find meaning out of everything, right? So if something falls outside the realm of what makes sense to you, you know, your brain categorizes these things. Yeah, It's like a I natural agree. process. We do judge. Judge we and judge. you might say the whole point of the 
process is to become a better judger. Ooh, or a more conscious, oh, like a, a conscious, aware, wiser judger. A wiser judger. Aware of I, your own judging <clears throat> patterns. <laughs> I actually, there's a very old famous Zen story about a, a student who goes to a Zen master and, and asks the Zen master, what's the most important thing in life? And the Zen master says, wisdom. And the student says, well, how do you get wisdom? And the, and the Zen master says, good judgment. And then the student asks, well, how do you get good judgment? Good judgment from bad judgment. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And that's in it in a nutshell, I think. You, that you, is awesome. You see the, the results of bad actions or bad things, that bad, bad judgments, and you learn from it. You become a little bit wiser. Mm, that's so funny because I was just going to get to the point now asking you um, if you have – if you had one thing that you could share with the world or one piece of wisdom that you would like to share with others that you have learned from your own experience, from your own life experience, what would it be? And I'm wondering hmm. if that was it or if it may be something else that you'd like to add to that. One piece of wisdom. That's a Or like, you one. know, like, yeah. Um, so what's one thing you can, you would like to, you would like to share with others? piece of wisdom you can give give to that's the a, world that's a tough question based on um, your own experience yeah um sorry <laughs> uh yeah it, it, so much uh, like i'm most like i'm aware of not really knowing what to say and then i'm also aware of like all these other possible things to say I'm like, like is that the right one is that the, is that the best is that the best most profound thing i could say is that the most interesting thing um i guess you know the thing that i try to convey to people um, this isn't really so much wisdom. It's um, it's an effort to try to explain how this style of meditation works. And if I were to convey one thing or want to convey one thing, it would be that it's much. I think it's much easier than most people think. Like most people think they can't meditate or they somehow don't have the right um, mindset for it or the, the right genetic predisposition for it or something. But I, I really do think if more people understood. The, how how meditation operates or works that they would they would be able to do it and benefit from it more. Mm. Um, it's, it's really not it's nothing magical. Yeah, that's really important. That's really important. Because I can't tell you the number of times people are like, oh, you meditate, I can't and then suddenly you, the, all these assumptions get made. Like somehow I can read their thoughts that I. Um... Oh wow. <laughs> They're Versus, psychic or something yes, because you psychic, meditate. Yeah, you know, it's a it's very like, no, no. everyday experience. It's a very everyday practice. Exactly. In yeah. fact, I have a workshop right now called Everyday Mindfulness. Yeah, tell us, tell everybody where they can find you. Tell them about this workshop. What's your website first and foremost? Uh, my website is my name, joshsummers.net. Great. It's just about to get overhauled or in the process of getting overhauled, but that's the website. Um, and... Yeah, that's that's the easiest way to find me. Um, I try to have a semi-regular blog about mindfulness and things to do with meditation if people are interested in that. Yeah, your newsletter is awesome. And Josh, just to remind everyone, he's an acupuncturist. He's amazing. He has a practice in Boston. Um, and he does workshops. So tell us about this workshop that's coming up. Oh, it's actually a workshop. It's almost, it's almost coming to an end. It was a... Oh. Uh, just a four-part series on Wednesday evenings at a studio in Boston. Um, 
but yeah, other events are on my website. I primarily teach um, yoga trainings or modules for a style of yoga um, now. Uh, so it's, it's not, I'm not doing a ton of teaching at the moment, unfortunately. But that's just the way things... Well, it's just where you are right now, right? Where I'm at with my schedule. The schedule, exactly. being, as you probably know yourself, being self-employed, the, the juggle of the schedule is always a... Uh, an equation you're trying to refine (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's always shifting it's always shifting exactly yeah well is there how about how about you though i'm actually curious i want to ask you that question if you had one bit of wisdom to impart or one oh my god i'm not i was not ready for this hey i wasn't ready for it either oh man um oh my gosh well, lucky for me, I have this. This is my podcast, so I can refine this and add to it. Um, but I would say it's really like the whole self-love thing is like a big thing that's touted around in the New Age community and in pretty much all spiritual communities. Um, so I don't tend to call it to refer to it as that. But finding um, like finding compassion for yourself and making friends with yourself, I suppose that's like kind of to reference Pema Chedron again, that's a, the way she puts it. And I read her books for years before I actually felt like I got that. I feel like I'm just starting to get it now. But um, that's the biggest thing. And whatever, I feel like there's a lot of different paths um, to to that end. So you can mm-hmm. do it via meditation or you can do it you know, via any sort of religion or, or maybe not even, but whatever, the most important thing is learning self-acceptance and self and self-compassion and self-love. And I think, um, I, again, like I'm, I'm not a teacher, so I don't have the answer for how to do that. <laughs> I have, pra- there's many practices that have worked for me, uh, and I'm sharing them on the Everyday Seeker net, um, website, everydayseeker.net for anybody that doesn't already know that. I have videos from different teachers um, that I love that, that sort of help with this concept. But um, self it starts with self-acceptance mm-hmm. and surrendering to what you are and who you are. And it's it's a brutal honesty. It's not always brutal, but it's just when you can you can let go of trying to be other than you are, even in your depression or your anxiety or your um, lack of self-confidence or whatever else you might have going on. Um, If you can just cultivate that compassion and that acceptance for yourself, everything shifts in your life. Everything begins to shift. You begin to become another, a different person, a better person and the person more of who you wanted to be, I think. because you're not putting so much pressure on yourself. Everything kind of releases. Um, so I, again, there's a million paths. I think that the, I think that the path to, to that and is different for everyone. And again, it's not just about the self because once you cultivate self-compassion, self-acceptance, um, you're really able to connect and relate differently and better to the, to the whole world and to the collective. Um, from that place so hopefully you know that's why i have people like you come on here josh is to talk about your path and to share all this wisdom so that other people can kind of pick and take what they what works for them but hopefully it's all going to help them work with themselves i like your answer it's a good one 
Yeah. Actually, to end on a Buddha quote, he said, the, the Buddha said, was asked once, like, asked about the idea of spiritual friendship. And, and he said the entire path is, or spiritual friendship is, is the entire path. Mm, and you know good. that can you could take that literally like the people you're hanging out with or the friends that you you walk a path with but folding it into what you were just saying um i think you could almost like almost hear him saying too that there's a fr- befriending of yourself a total befriending of yourself which comes through self-acceptance and self-love that you're 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 embracing all of all aspects of yourself your and, flaws everything you yeah. don't like about yourself you're embracing too yeah yeah it's a process. <laughs> it definitely is. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Josh, for coming on. I really appreciate you so you much. Bet. I'm so yeah. glad to know you. And, you know, hopefully you'll come back and talk to us some more and share more of your nuggets of wisdom. Likewise. It's been a lot of fun. So joshsummers.net. You can find him there. Um, thank you, everyone, so much. Have a wonderful week. Take care. Thanks, Josh.